None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Joining me once again from Midwestern University is biomedical educator Dr. Walt Brzezelik, who recently published a second article on lead levels in Kratom products. Thanks a lot for uh, doing this with me. I just read your paper. Uh, I think somebody tweeted it out, and it it came out the same day uh, that I put out a thing that I was doing, just going over all of the uh, instances of um, liver toxicities uh, with Kratom and and one of the possibilities that I considered maybe that it was contamination with lead. But uh, when your paper came out, I edited my blog post just to put a link to it so uh, people would see that as well since it's close to the same topic. Well, I I read the blog post and you did a very nice job on it. It's uh, one of the nicer reviews of kratom-induced liver injury. I have a group of medical students. We're doing a study to analyze case reports of kratom toxicity in the U.S. And uh, the liver injury issue is one that keeps coming up, but it's really unclear if kratom itself is the problem or if it's the junk that can be in some of the kratom products. Most of the case reports, they don't really do much forensics work. So yeah, yeah. I wish. I mean, because I noticed some of them. I, I was looking at, uh, you know, the funding, and some of them said, "Well, there really is no funding. It was just a doctor that published it on his own, I guess." And yeah. uh, so yeah. none of them actually, you know, bothered to even try to get the product tested because because i i would just be curious as to whether it was an extract and and how much of it they took and and some of them even they don't even test doesn't even seem they test the patient or they didn't even mention it i'm actually working on one about pregnancies now and and some of them just go on claims and you there's a re there's a very good reason uh for a uh pregnant um mother to claim it was i was just doing kratom and not illegal drugs because uh, right. then cps could come in and and possibly take which um m- was mentioned in a couple of the articles i'm looking at uh neonatal abstinence syndrome and, and yeah. involving kratom but yeah uh, that's a really interesting topic i can't wait to see what you come up with on that your paper was called public health implications and possible sources of lead as a contaminant of poorly regulated kratom products in the United States, and this is recently published in the journal Toxics, and this is actually a commentary, and it's based on a study that you conducted that we we talked about last time you were on, uh, where you collected uh, samples, you went around and purchased samples in the Chicago area, and six out of the eight samples uh, contained uh, levels of lead that were concerning. In general, just why was it important for you to emphasize this finding uh, with a commentary uh, beyond publishing the earlier study? Well, thanks, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity to come back on and talk with you. When we first did that study, it was as we were starting the work, people at the FDA published results showing that of, of about 30 Kratom products that they looked at, most, in fact, almost all of them had significant levels of nickel and lead. So they kind of beat me to the punch on the observation that there's significant amounts of lead in Kratom. But I, I, I was curious, so we just continued our study on Kratom samples from head shops in the Chicago area And it was interesting, the numbers we observed for lead concentrations in those samples were almost identical to the range of levels reported by the FDA. And then Mm -hmm. I I do have a background in heavy metal toxicology. I've spent about 35 years studying how cadmium 
and other metals damage the kidney. Now, even though I didn't do a lot of work in my own career on lead, one of my colleagues here at Midwestern, Joshua Edwards, who was hired here back in the early 2000s as a postdoctoral fellow in my lab. He's now a full professor in our department, but he's done quite a bit of work on lead toxicity. So we were talking and we came up with the idea to look more closely at the possible significance of lead in Kratom. And that's where the idea for the paper came from. And as we started looking, it became pretty obvious that the amount of lead in some of the Kratom products is much higher than that present in many foods that have been notorious for having relatively high levels of lead. So we thought this could be pretty significant, especially for chronic high-dose users of Kratom. Um, if they use one of these products that happens to contain a lot of lead, uh, they might be putting themselves at risk, not just from you know, whatever Kratom might do from a toxicologic standpoint, but the lead exposure is pretty concerning because lead, once it gets in the body, it really doesn't get out. And it's a cumulative toxin, and it can produce a lot of effects. So we thought this was important, and we wanted to get it out as soon as possible. So you do say in the paper, like, there's lead all over the place, but it just it's just a matter of uh, if you get to that toxic amount. There's uh, charts in this paper, the, and the one you were just talking about, it shows th there are levels of lead that appear in various canned goods, uh, fruit cocktail, peaches, apricots, sweet potatoes, uh, chocolate syrup, and candy bars. And the kratom levels you found, it looks like it exceeds that by at least two or three times um, yeah, it, the levels. It, 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 it's much higher. One thing that people have to keep in mind when they see uh, just the raw concentrations of lead in these materials, you sort of have to consider the total intake of those materials. Like, uh, you know, somebody who's taken five to ten grams of kratom, that's not you know, a ridiculously high dose. I mean, heavy users get up much higher than that. Uh, on the other hand, you know, how much fruit cocktail does the average person or how many canned sweet potatoes does the average person, <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah. it's hard to get an estimate. But the point we were trying to make by that particular figure is that the amount of kratom in lead is pretty significant, and it's almost impossible to avoid lead exposure uh, in our modern culture. So people are going to be exposed from multiple sources, and the key point I wanted to make was, look, if you're taking high doses of these kratom products that happen to contain a lot of lead, that's going to be one of your major sources of lead exposure. Yeah, and, and I wanted to uh, just talk about lead in general. I think uh, your section two of this um, article talked about it. And um, so what are just some of the toxic effects of lead? You list uh, quite a bit of them. Yeah, the, well, the effects are of most concern in children. And uh, that's illustrated just by some of the foods that he <laughs> NIH has looked at and paid attention to uh, the foods we listed. A lot of the products like fruit and sweet potatoes, mm. peaches, uh, they're used in baby foods. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so that's one of the reasons I think they focused on those foods. And the big thing with lead, it uh, interferes with brain and neuronal development in kids and it can really impact a kid's long-term intellectual function. There's definitely intellectual impairment in kids who are exposed to significant amounts of lead. There's been good evidence that there are behavioral changes. Uh, 
that the kids become more aggressive. There's well-documented associations between lead exposure and increased risk of criminal activity down the road, huh. uh, learning impairments. So a lot of the concern is focused on kids. But, you know, obviously most kids aren't going to be eating, you know, 10 to 15 grams of kratom a day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, unless they're poisoned, you know, they get into mom or dad's stash. And even that I don't think is going to happen very often because kratom tastes so bad. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think they're going to eat it. <laughs> yeah. But in, on the other hand, kratom or uh, lead is also toxic to adults. And it can really affect almost every organ system of the body. Uh, some of the effects just from acute exposure include GI distress, abdominal cramping, and so forth, which high doses of kratom can also cause pretty intense GI effects. Uh, the vomiting and cramping can be pretty severe. Those are documented on kratom user sites. Uh, other effects are on things like blood count. Uh, lead causes various types of anemia. Uh, lead affects the kidney. It can increase, it, it could cause kidney injury. Uh, lead affects the liver. It can affect liver function over time. Uh, it also has neurologic effects, uh, including seizures and tremors which if you look at some of the reports of toxicity with Kratom, uh, one of the things that distinguishes Kratom from opioids in terms of acute toxicity is Kratom is far more likely to produce excitatory symptoms during uh, poisoning. Things like seizures, that's one of the more common reports associated yeah. with Kratom overdose, tremors. Even people using moderate doses of Kratom sometimes have problems with tremors, exacerbation of existing tremors. So the point is there's a lot of things lead could be doing just by itself to adults. And my biggest concern is most adults, especially those who are using Kratom, probably are using other substances that could affect many of the same target organs. For example, the liver, you know, person that say using Kratom for pain management, chances are that they've been using acetaminophen or some other drug that might affect the liver. Yeah. So the bottom line is there's so much potential for lead to produce effects on various organs and the chance that there's an interaction between lead and other drugs, such as, you know, the mitragynines or whatever is in Kratom that produces its various effects, um, how, how does lead affect those responses? So it, it's something I'm concerned about. And then the fact that everybody or most Kratom users are going to be using the other drugs. How do they interact with each other? That's one question, but how do they interact with lead? How does lead affect the response to the drugs? There's nothing in the literature about that. One of the case reports of uh, the liver toxicities, uh, that's, that was Kratom involved. The guy was, he wasn't taking anything else except for 3,000 milligrams of uh, Tylenol a day, which is a lot. Well, for someone <laughs> with potential liver issues, I, as I recall, didn't that guy have a history of some type of hepatitis, but it wasn't active? I, I don't recall for sure. Uh, I think there was a, there was a guy uh, yeah, with that, yeah. 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 But somebody with a history of hepatitis, like taking three grams of acetaminophen a day, that by itself is kind of risky. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, you know, the... The FDA, when they first became concerned about liver toxicity with acetaminophen, you know, they said, you know, doses under four grams a day are probably okay. But what has been kind of overlooked is that's for people with healthy, happy, pristine livers. Yeah. Not, 
like people like me who've spent their lives abusing their liver with <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So healthy, pristine livers in older people, those aren't real common. For anybody listening, uh, 3,000 or 3 grams is like 15 regular Tylenol every single day. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not as big a problem now since they got rid of the extra strength Tylenol that had like 600 and some milligrams in each wow. capsule. Yeah, that was really easy for people to load up on the acetaminophen then. Yeah, but, and, I, and I even, in my article, I was talking about how I found it in one paper said that that's the leading cause, acetaminophen is the leading cause of liver transplant. Yeah. Uh, I think. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it might be, but yeah. you know, one of the things with acetaminophen, and I talk about this when I talk about opioid prescribing with our students, and I've also talked about this in CME sessions, you know, with the current opioid crisis, physicians are really discouraged from prescribing opioids, especially for chronic pain conditions. Uh -huh. And, you know, the CDC guidelines that were adopted in 2016, they emphasize the use of uh, non-opioid drugs. Well, the first non-opioid drug people would try or physicians might recommend for their patients is acetaminophen. Well, acetaminophen is not a benign drug. And if you look at the liver injury issue with acetaminophen, and you look up the numbers, how many people actually have, you know, irreversible liver damage from acute acetaminophen poisoning? This is basically one overdose. There's only like 3,000 or so uh, cases a year, I think, in the U.S. But what about lower dose chronic use of acetaminophen that just, you know, it doesn't destroy the liver, but it just weakens it? Then the person also happens to, you know, like their beer or wine and, you know, that puts stress on the liver. And my suspicion is that acetaminophen liver toxicity is much more common as a health problem than most experts even would uh, admit. Uh, it's mm. just you know, one of many factors that can contribute to liver dysfunction. So that's one issue. Then some of the other drugs that are recommended as alternatives for opioids, the NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, you know, I, I described the cases we were, you know, doing our high how are you's before we got on the air. And uh, uh, I talked about that bleeding episode. And if you look at instances of acute bleeding caused by NSAIDs, it's probably under 10,000 where people mm -hmm. actually bleed to death from, you know, an NSAID. So it doesn't sound that bad compared with 100,000 opioid overdose deaths. But what's often overlooked is in many patients that bleeding can be chronic and the patient might not be aware of it. Uh, NSAIDs also affect things like cardiac function and blood pressure that can increase the risk of heart attacks and strokes. In fact, there's a black box warning on almost all NSAIDs that uh, they can increase the risk of, I think they worded, adverse cardiovascular effects. Now, my point is if you factor in how many people might die or have severe hypertension that's caused by extensive use of NSAIDs, which can be also be aggravated by alcohol mm -hmm. or maybe maybe a drug, I don't know what effects of Kratom are on their long-term Kratom use is on blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Might there be an interaction there? So the point is these drugs that are touted as uh, recommended over opioids, they're not 
all that safe in many respects. It's, it's something I, I, I've just had an issue with, with the uh, opioid prescribing issues that have come up since uh, 2016. Of course, the people with the untreated pain are turning to Kratom. I mean, we've had so many comments on our website that that's the reason why, and I've personally talked to people and know people who said, well, I was just plain cut off of my opioids and found Kratom. Either that or going and trying to buy, you know, street Oxycontins or Percocets, which are most likely fentanyl pills. Yeah, which which I understand caused most of the overdose death, and, and it wasn't... Uh, for most of them weren't from the uh, actual prescription opioids. Yeah, yeah. But what about dietary supplements? Because they're not yeah. under as strict regulation as you wouldn't expect lead exposure in Tylenol, but you oh, might it, might expect it in some of these supplements. It's it's a huge issue because the supplements are so poorly regulated, and you know where these herbs or plants that most of the supplements are derived from where they're grown is one thing, you know, are they grown in areas where lead might be an important contaminant? How are they processed? There's been a lot of studies on this issue. I mean, I think I might have it here. I pulled out a couple papers that I thought might come up, but one is a paper from China that is actually a very good paper the investigators looked at lead levels in a variety of herbal supplements in Chinese traditional medicines, and they found a lot of lead in a lot of products. Yeah. So, uh, the point is, lead is everywhere, and it's not just kratom as a herbal product that might contain lead, but a lot of herbals, some of the spices we eat, contain lead but there are regulations you know for commercially sold food products but these supplements they're totally or almost totally unregulated it seems like they don't have the enforcement enough funding for enforcement to uh you know make sure these dietary supplements are going through good manufacturing practices and and that was another issue with uh the kratom is uh the american kratom association has good manufacturing practices uh only a few people agree to that and and yeah. even then even then i i was i just had a couple of quality control experts on uh jennifer bruce and the other uh was named stacy lloyd who started uh this kratom vendors association and she was telling me how you know the aka has this program which is good but that all the uh, auditing is independent so they they have to do this audit once a year but um you know we don't know if all of them are keeping up with the standards for the rest of the year. So she, she started this uh, vendors association so to keep people like, you know, actually work with the um, vet, the members. It's like a membership so the vendors can join and they'll actually work with them to make sure they're updated all the time. They have clean facilities uh, and everything like that. So she's trying to get that going to, to make this GMP program even stronger. But, but I think it just in general with these dietary supplements and especially Kratom because it's not even classified as a new dietary ingredient. You know, some of the customers are educated and they'll ask uh, do you have labs to show there's no uh, levels of contaminants or lead in this and and so it's kind of like a problem that there's no real oversight and people can't just trust that their kratom is going to be clean yeah there are some vendors now who upon re request will provide analytical data for the lot number and batch of kratom that the product is derived from so a few vendors do that and mm. you can find that online which i think is wonderful yeah and the american kratom association and also the states that are passing the Kratom Consumer Protection Laws, mm -hmm. uh, a.k.a. they recommend the metal analysis. That's part of their good laboratory practices program. Yeah. But as you said, they just don't have the enforcement capabilities. Uh, you know, a once a year audit can be easily beaten. 
but uh, yeah. the enforcement capabilities to randomly test products. That's one reason we did our own little study here in Chicago, and mm-hmm. it was it was eye opening. What I found interesting: the only vendor of the products that we tested, only one vendor was AKA compliant with yeah. in theory good manufacturing practices, and their products, both of them, were clean, which yeah. I was really impressed with. I thought this stuff matters. Were those extracts as well? Because I think like the extraction process uh, kind of cleans it. Not that I want to encourage people to use extracts instead of uh, plain leaf because that it's kind of right. like drinking whiskey versus a beer. Uh, yeah. It's a little stronger, but, but I think uh, maybe like this extraction process maybe filters out a lot of the lead. Exactly. Whatever they do, you know, I, I'm not sure how the extraction procedure works. I would imagine there are changes in pH, uh, either acidic or alkaline conditions, probably both to do the extraction. Mm-hmm. And then some sort of organic solvent, which lead probably would not extract well into the organic solvent. Yeah. So uh, it, uh, how the products are processed, I guess that's kind of a trade secret for the companies that do that. But, you know, the other products that aren't processed at all, it's where does it come from? How is it processed? And why is there so much lead in some of the samples? I just don't have an answer for that. Yeah, but you go over possibilities here in the paper. The one possibility was Indonesia has a volcanic soil that might have uh, lead in the soil, and and there's a possibility that it might leach into the kratom. And I did have uh, Dr. Brian Pearson on, and I was listening to our last, you mentioned him in our last conversation, but uh, yeah, he was talking about that too, and, and they're we just don't know yet whether or not that occurs. And I'm wondering if we know, like, do Indonesians have uh, levels, higher levels of lead in their food products? Is it even possible that they're accustomed to it? I would doubt that you get accustomed or tolerant okay. to lead. Yeah, I, I, yeah. is the way lead is acts <laughs> as a toxicant, I can't imagine that happen, yeah, happening. Yeah. But there's one little point we made in our paper. Now, it wasn't our data that I based this speculation on. It was from a paper, and I have it right here, by a Dr. Hondronagianis, who is at Towson State University in Maryland. And she published a paper about levels of metals in various kratom products that were supposedly sourced from different regions of the world. She did some very nice work and found that there were differences in kratom samples that supposedly came from Thailand or Malaysia versus ones from Indonesia. She did present some very good data. Now, the one thing I noticed when I was looking at her data was the levels of lead that she reported in all the samples that she analyzed were about 100 times lower than the levels that we observed and that the people at the FDA observed. And I spoke with her over the phone, and there may have been just a tabulation error, but I'm not, that has not been confirmed to me. But when I looked at her data, The one thing that struck me, she had sourced some of these products and she could not verify the sources. That's one of the problems with this. But the observation I think is interesting. She talked about samples or presented data from samples that originated from quote Borneo. Yeah. And those Borneo samples had lower levels of lead, at least according to her data, than the samples that were sourced, and I'm quoting this, from Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Now, I pulled out my map of Indonesia here. And Indonesia is like a string of islands. It's kind of a huge country. Yeah. But 
the three biggest islands are Sumatra, which is kind of on the west, northwest, mm. Java, which is where Java, the, yeah. the big cities are, including Java. Jakarta. Mm. And then uh, Borneo is an island that the Indonesians called Kalimantan. Yes. So That's where it, most of the Kratom is grown, as I understand it. Yes, yes. But according to this study, though, the samples from Borneo seem to have lower levels than the samples from, quote, Indonesia. So I'm yeah. thinking maybe some of the products come from Java, you know, the island, and there might be more lead there because Jakarta is notoriously lead polluted. It's one of the most polluted cities in the world uh, yeah. in terms of lead. And uh, I'm thinking Borneo, which is more pristine, and it, it just might not have the lead pollution issue. And uh, I'm planning to contact people in Indonesia about that. It was about four years ago yeah. I actually gave a talk for a group of people in the West Kalimantan province of Indonesia. Yeah. And it, it was interesting. I mean, they were trying to foster the cultivation of kratom as a cash crop. I mean, the governor of the province mm -hmm. and even the police officials were there and scientists, mostly agronomist type people. But it was really interesting. They were all aboard on trying to foster the growth of kratom as mainly to make money on it i had a group on they were like a farmer's co-op uh that i interviewed they're kind of like a co-op and they're trying to have uh, clean you know cleaner facilities and they're they have like they had like video that showed that look this is we're processing a clean facility because there's concerns about outdoor drying and animals running over the leaves with contamination yes. and whatnot the water quality you know i'm sure you know once they harvest the leaves, they would probably wash them just to get any you know, yeah. bird crap and stuff off. The, <laughs> the I, I would hope they would wash them. But what about the water? You know, is the water clean or is the water contaminated? Because if you wash something and then let the water evaporate, you're just going to concentrate any metals that happen to be in the water yeah so, i was gonna ask that like is there is there lead in the water there because because you mentioned that in the in the uh, article lead lead in water i i was gonna mention this earlier but water is probably the main source of lead exposure for most people around the world if it's in the water and people can't afford or don't have access to bottled water and they're drinking tap water. Or, or they live in an old city like Pittsburgh or Philadelphia where we still yeah. have these old pi pipes that they have to, they haven't yeah. updated all of them. There's, there's lead in the water here too. Is, is there in Pittsburgh? I haven't. They, they recently updated them. I actually went to, uh, years ago, I went to the Philadelphia, uh, UPenn, they had a free open uh, discussion about uh, lead levels in, in Philadelphia in Pittsburgh and pipes. They talked about all that, how how the infrastructure desperately needed to update. And our last mayor here actually did near my house too, which is oh wow. <laughs> but yeah, but that, yeah, that was it's kind of like Flint, Michigan type yeah, of stuff. It's, it's old infrastructure. Old. It's never yeah, been updated. Planted Pennsylvania out here in the Chicago area, regions of the Chicago suburbs are just absolutely polluted with lead. And yeah. it's interesting, most of the areas where lead pollution is the biggest problem are former very industrialized areas. There's some really interesting data about concentration of lead along the infamous expressways that run from northwest Indiana into Chicago, I-80 and I-94 that run together. It's just a funnel for traffic. And from all the years of this traffic coming through before we restricted lead in gasoline, the closer you are to the expressway, the more lead there is in the soil. These poor people yeah. who live there, you know, their kids go outside and they play in, you know, the, the grass or the dirt. And 
they're exposed to lead that way. Their houses, which tend to be older, are loaded with lead-based paint, and the kids chew on the paint chips, which evidently have a sweet kind of taste. And then the lead gets into the water supply, and it's just a lot of these suburban areas, uh, they get their water from well waters. I've been in Chicago now for 31 years, and it's only you know, the past 20 years or so that Lake Michigan water has been widely disseminated outside the city of Chicago. City of Chicago's always gotten their water from Lake Michigan, Mm -hmm. but most of the suburbs had their own wells Mm -hmm. and the groundwater, trust me, it was rather putrid. Everybody (laughs) had water softener, water purifier, and there was a lot of junk in that water. So the areas that were, you know, near the industrial sites, they're polluted like crazy. I wanted to go back to that study uh, study about various strains from the regions, because uh, I looked at it a little bit, but not very closely. And I'm wondering how they, how, if she just got that from the labels, uh, that it was from uh, Borneo and Indo, because I know a lot of people are probably listening to this and, and they're thinking, well, I know like a lot of companies just do these for brand names it, it's not necessarily and i think it's it's kind of like it's the same thing in the cannabis where the strains don't really mean that much other than this was a popular strain called indo and it and it had these uh certain effects more than other effect i think a lot of them they don't they all come from the same place and they maybe blend them differently in their different labels like borneo now, indo whatnot Ryan, that that's a great point and as I look at the paper that I was mentioning there, they do emphasize that this is purported origin. And in the one graph, they show Borneo, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam. Yeah. But that's what the vendors or where the vendors told them that the products came yeah. from. This paper, which is actually quite good, the authors actually state we could not verify this, but you know, this is what our data suggests. And and it's you know, interesting because, well, Malaysia, it's still illegal there. Uh, and Thailand, it was illegal up until uh, yeah, recently. Thailand, Thailand is really pushing for the cultivation as a cash crop. They've gotten <laughs> all aboard the, uh, the Kratom as a worldwide product. Well, that would be interesting then to actually do a follow-up study to see if there's less lead levels in Thailand kratom that you could verify that's actually from there versus yeah. uh, from West Kalimantan, where I think West Kalimantan is where most of the kratom for the United States market has grown. I, I, I agree with yeah. your assessment there, which uh, as we were talking about this, I thought you know, something that's a little bit funny, you know, nowadays paying what we do for gasoline when you pull in and you're buying the 87 octane or you have a nicer car and you go up to 90 something octane. Yeah. Uh, it's probably all from the same tank tank of gas under the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, th- and then there's the other possibility that lead could be from the grinding equipment, because we mostly consume ground leaf material over here, could that also be a source of some of these uh, other metals that are found in Kratom? Yeah, that's interesting you brought that up, because when I first got interested in this issue of the metals in Kratom, the ones that (laughs) I saw that were highest were nickel, chromium and iron and i started thinking okay now these are all not rare materials i mean iron is in plants the the chloroplasts of plants have tons of iron so I, i started thinking about it but the chromium and the nickel they might come from some of the processing equipment lead which is found at much lower levels but is much more toxic than the other metals some of the older equipment, lead solders were used to fasten joints for food processing equipment. It's only recently that we got rid of lead in cans that were used for 
canned food products. So some of this older equipment that these companies that aren't so much up to modern food processing or modern processing of herbal products, they might be using this older equipment and it, it certainly could come from lead. It could be a source of where the lead comes from. Mm. Our paper, we cited a paper, there's nothing about this on the processing of kratom, but there is information about in chocolate, uh, lead coming from equipment that's sometimes used to process low-grade chocolate. Uh, you know, there is a precedent that the processing equipment could be a source of lead. Okay, there's this other thing in the article that, that uh, said... Uh... So it's not surprising that many Kratom producers and vendors have been less than forthright in providing information about the sourcing and processing. This problem has been further compounded by the fact that the U.S. government has recently issued import alerts and seized shipments of Kratom from Indonesia. So how does that uh, seizure of the shipments um, compound the problem? Well, if there's a strong paper trail... <laughs> It's going to be easier for regulators to find the products. Mm. And, you know, seizing a product, I, I do not understand the legalities. But if Kratom is legal in the U.S., I do not understand how the DEA can seize the product. I've tried to look into the matter, but I could not find complete details for whatever reason, the DEA became concerned about various batches of Kratom that were being imported. And I could not find anything, at least in my searches, that explained why they were concerned about those particular shipments. Yeah. If there's a chance, if, if you know, imagine being in the Kratom importation business and there's a chance that you're ton of kratom or multiple tons of kratom might be seized yeah you're gonna try to put it underground and by underground i mean just cover it up a little bit and not be so open about where it came from and i just think the enforcement like that probably drives things underground you know it's like if a drug is illegal it's on the black market and in some ways, the Kratom industry, even though it's not a black market, it's kind of a gray market is from what I've seen. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Gray market is definitely how I would <laughs> classify it. They use U.S. Marshals to do this, and U.S. Marshals have other things to do like transporting felons uh, and, <laughs> and all this other stuff. So yeah. I think if they're going to do it, they're going to try to target somebody who might have something else in there with the shipments or yeah, something like yeah. that. I don't want to get too into alleging anything, but yeah, but I yeah, think yeah. I think it's a political reason probably why they, they choose one and not the other. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. There, yeah. There's something under the surface that, you know, is not for public consumption. Yeah. But again, for people in the Kratom business, that can't be a good thing to have no. hanging over their heads. No. And, terms of quality control. Absolutely not. On, the, on yeah. the other hand, and again, I'm just speaking as an observer, someone from within the Kratom industry would certainly know this. There are companies that provide high quality products and, you know, they probably have a reliable source. They probably, I would expect, would have some sort of quality control along, uh, what would you call it, the custody chain from mm -hmm. when the leaves are harvested from the tree. Yeah. And, you know, uh, they're processed. You know, do they have data on things like pollutants and metals and uh, mitragynin content? Uh, that sort of thing. I would think a good producer and good processor would have all of that information. I wish someone would publish something like that. That would really help. And for the company that does that, I would predict it would be a gold mine. People uh, would pay really? more yeah. that they knew was clean. I wanted to ask another thing. 
provisional tolerant daily intake oh, and a okay. permitted yeah. daily exposure. And there was yeah. a difference for foods and pharmaceuticals. So what's yeah. the actual difference? And then like the follow-up to that would be uh, pharmacologically, how could like metragenine interact or any of the alkaloids interact with lead, not just the lead exposure on its own, but the interaction with the alkaloids? Well, number one, with the regulatory values that I showed in that graph, the one at 75 micrograms per day, that was the standard that was set way back in the early 1990s. And what happened as more and more concern arose throughout the 90s, lead became much more of a hot topic and research showed that even those relatively low levels of lead intake could be harmful, especially to kids. So over the years, regulatory cutoffs have been tightened. Now, why there is a difference between, you know, the food levels, the 12.5 microgram or the tolerable daily intake and the level for pharmaceuticals I really don't know what the rationale is for that. As far as I'm concerned, wherever the lead comes from, it's lead and it's getting into the body. Yeah. Now, with the pharmaceuticals, for most pharmaceuticals, people are not going to consume grams of pharmaceuticals. You know, you think about the average medicinal tablet you take, small. You know, it's unusual for people to be using grams of a substance like Kratom. Mm -hmm. And there's the debate, is Kratom a drug or a food? I mentioned that issue when I talked about this. That's why we showed all of these cutoff levels. And the one thing that I probably should have mentioned in the paper that I didn't get into is that these cutoff levels or these regulatory levels are much lower than the level of lead that most people could probably tolerate, at least by lead exposure alone. So these regulatory values are probably one-fifth to one-tenth below the level of lead that would actually cause harm in the vast majority of people. It's a margin of safety. Now, with that said, I just saw some data for water levels. The action level for lead in water is 15 micrograms per liter of water. Mm. So, uh, and then I found another piece of information that in most parts of the U.S., the mean dietary intake is about a 150 micrograms per day, but that's not in a lead polluted area. Mm -hmm. And then the WHO has a much higher tolerable level of lead intake. They go up to 400 micrograms per day, but that's from all sources. And that's in adults, fully mature adults, the bottom line is the level that can cause damage over time is probably lower than that. But mm -hmm. the regulatory, le le regulatory values are lower than the probable dangerous values. That's what I'm trying to say. There's a, a bit about smoking in there. I'll just read it. It's important to note that lead is just one of many toxic metals. The other metals are nick. Nickel, chromium, and cadmium. Lifestyle factors such as smoking can represent a source of exposure, especially is that cad cadmium CD? So yeah, if a smoke, yeah. a, if somebody takes cranium and smokes, they could they, it could possibly be compounding these exposure to toxic metals. Yes, I, I, I I've been doing research on cadmium for like I said thirty five years mm -hmm. and. U.S. smoking is the number one source of cadmium exposure, and uh, smoking has a it does a lot of things. One of the things that's overlooked with smoking, we focus on the lung, but smoking has a lot of toxic effects on other organs, including the gastrointestinal tract and the liver, which mm. 
throw in smoking with kratom and possible lead contamination, then there could be a problem. So these regulatory values and the fact that you know higher levels of lead are probably tolerated in most people, if you factor in smoking and other factors that can affect overall health quality, you know, the level of lead that could be dangerous is much lower. And I wanted to ask, and I and I did quote you, um, there was a journalist who did an article about Kratom deaths. Uh, his name is Edward Erickson, and, but he quoted you, it seems like it's always young men that take like a, a massive amount of Kratom. Yes. Uh, these were concentrations in the blood of uh, 2,200 to 2,700 nanograms per milliliter. And, and you were quoted as saying it had to be at least 40 to 80 grams of leaf material consumed in a very short time, maybe an yeah. hour at most. Could it lead or contaminants have contributed to that? Or is it just possible that that was enough to, you know, cause a death on its own? Yeah, that's a, a $10,000 question. Yeah. And I can't answer that. But when I did that interview with Mr. Erickson, and I did those calculations in pharmacology, and pharmacists do this. You know, the question is, the way it works in a typical, say, hospital setting, is mm. a doctor is going to prescribe a drug for a patient and wants to get to a certain blood level in the patient. The question is, what's the dose of drug to get to a certain blood level? And there are equations that factor in how much of the drug gets into the bloodstream. Say it's a pill that people swallow orally. What percentage gets absorbed, gets through the liver, and gets into the general circulation? Uh, so there are equations that tie the dose to the blood level. And when I saw these blood levels of mitragynine or mitragynine, I thought, I'll just back calculate, you know, what would the dose have had to be? And mm. when I did that, I made some assumptions trying to err on the side of being very conservative. And I made the assumption that 100% of the mitragynine slash mitragynine that the person swallowed got into the bloodstream. And that something it's probably about 10%. But I, I just thought I'm going to be very conservative here. And uh, when I did the calculations, there's also a parameter called the volume of distribution, which is if the drug was in the plasma, at the concentration in the plasma, and it was evenly distributed in a bucket of plasma, what would the volume of plasma have to be? And so it's a theoretical number. You get volumes of distribution for mm -hmm. some parts of being a thousand. Well, obviously, a 70 kilogram person doesn't have a thousand liters of plasma in them. Mm. So, but it's an important number for pharmacologic calculations and pharmaceutical calculations. So when I plugged in the numbers that are known for my tragenine, that was the estimate. And I assumed the mitragynine content of kratom leaf that was much higher than actually there is. So my estimate was very conservative, and I would honestly say that I expect the dose was actually much higher than that. Also, there could be the issue if these young men had been taking kratom chronically, which they were, I have no doubt about it. The Definitely, blood level, yeah. yeah, the chronic dose would up the blood level. So okay. uh, I think my guesstimate was pretty much on. Both gentlemen, as I recall, the poor guys who passed away, uh, they denied other drug use. But, you know, I, I can't say that's not true, but I'm concerned. It, it just doesn't seem that kratom or mitragynine at those levels would be fatal based on doses of kratom that kratom users have reported using. Yeah, there was a uh, toxicology study in 2019 out of uh, NMS labs 
and and I was actually in touch with that lab, and the only one that they found was my tragedy alone. The guy had like twenty nine thousand uh, nanograms per milliliter. I I think he just. It, it might have been a deliberate suicide. He just got maybe a case of the shots and just did one after the other. All the others were at about these le- levels. Um, I mean, not all of them. I mean, a lot of them were about these, like, 2,000 levels. And they all had, like, fentanyl or some something else in their system. The one I got one from Freedom of Information, and I was looking at that, and they did test him for everything else, and all he, all he had was, like, a nicotine metabolite, and he had uh, something like, t- you know, 21, 2700 nanograms per milliliter of mitragynine in his system. So I'm just wondering if there might be, like, uh, drugs that they don't test. They they found fenobut in yeah. kratom samples. They found... Uh, Tianeptine. Yeah. It doesn't seem right on the one hand, and on the other hand, I know if you take enough of anything that it can be toxic. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm saying I don't know that 80 milligrams of kratom would actually kill somebody, that there might be other factors. And, you know, I based that estimate on, again, very conservative calculations. And you meant 80 grams of kratom. Yeah, yeah, 80 grams, 80 grams, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, and I'm sorry. The bottom line is what the fatal dose or fatal level of mitragynine is, that's totally up in the air. People are trying to define it. And then the issue about other drugs, these newer designer drugs, are they don't show up on a lot of drug screens. So the bottom Mm -hmm. line is the forensic scientists might do a complete drug screen using existing technology you know there might be a urine test and if there's some evidence say that the person had used opioids they would do a more detailed confirmatory test to find out which opioid but some of these new designer drugs aren't going to show up on an initial screen there's like the new cannabinoids that are showing up all over the place what the one is called delta 8 yeah, but that's everywhere in the Chicago area. There's yeah. shops all over the place selling it, and then there's a new one, uh, THCO. Have you heard of that one? Actually, I haven't heard of that one. No. Yeah, it's another you know designer analog of THC. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if those drugs would show up on a cannabinoid screen. I yeah, the one don't... I didn't find was cadmium. Uh, the okay. Cadmium Levels were pretty low, but it's interesting. There was just a case report a few months ago. It was from Iowa. I think it was out of Des Moines, a group of researchers with the university, clinicians uh, with the University of Iowa Medical Center, but it was definitely Des Moines. And uh, they thought that Kratom might have contributed to cadmium induced kidney injury in a patient. It was just a case. And uh, they did have data for cadmium, but they didn't have data for lead. And again, I I followed that story because I'd done so much research on cadmium and how it damages the kidney. And I thought it was cool. It tied both of my worlds together, cadmium and kratom. I didn't see that one. I'll have to look at that. I guess the only other thing I just had a question about, the FDA did that study. I know a lot of people are going to listen to this and say the FDA wants to ban Kratom, so how do we know uh, their um, study is uh, accurate with the lead levels? Well, uh, I, I, I can address that one very quickly yes. because I have the same levels they reported. Yeah. Uh, the products, like, Again, they they looked at 30 different products that they bought from Internet vendors and they list the products and none of them were the same products that I assayed. But the fact that their data was in the same range as my data, I, I fully 100 support 100 uh, percent think that their study was well done because mine mm-hmm. was very well done. <laughs> yeah, kidding. yeah. Uh, the bottom line is, I, I don't think the people doing those types of analyses at the FDA have a Kratom agenda. Yeah. Here. 
I, I think the agenda comes from higher levels, and that's that's a separate issue. Yeah, I think there's political people in there, and then there's just scientists because uh, doing their work. The NIDA study that they just put out, they're going to be surveying people who use Kratom uh, they, through an app. This is uh, Dr. Kirsten Smith, and they just uh, released oh, this study. She, she, she's very good. But she's getting kind of backlash on Reddit about, oh, the government's going to track me, the government, the government, the government. And yeah. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to explain. It. There's some people you can't explain it to, but some people have understandable skepticism but i'm like i can guarantee this person really wants to find out how kratom works and and, and what there's a need for that sort of study and the fact yeah. that there are reputable reputable scientists like dr smith and probably some other people that i know are involved in that type of survey and tracking study yeah. they don't have ulterior motives they want to find the truth which is definitely what scientists do and the great thing about science is you don't have to trust anybody. You could look at the evidence yourself, which I hope is what we're helping people do. Thank you very much, Walt Progelic. Please like, subscribe, share, rate, review, share on your social media. We're on Twitter at Kratom Science. We're on Facebook. We're on TikTok. The music is Risey. The song is called Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science podcast is produced by me. Brian Gallagher for KratomScience.com. Take care.